Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. We begin today a new series entitled Christianity 101. In other words, what are some tests that Christianity needs to pass, and what are some tests that you need to have excelled in if you're going to be able to defend your faith, to know what you believe and why you believe it. And we'll look at many texts this morning, but we'll begin with First Peter chapter 1. And so while you're turning there, I want us to talk about what it means for us to be believers, what it means to be a Christian, a distinctively unique, one-of-a-kind not religion, but a relationship with Christ. Not based on the works or the words of a man, but on the work and the words of God. First Peter chapter 1, Peter is writing to the church and he's telling them in the first century, for all flesh is like grass, verse 24, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Now, there are three things that you can see in those two verses. First of all, the word of God is infallible. It is the word of the Lord. It's not the word of man. It's not based on an opinion poll. It is emphatically stated as the word of the Lord. Not a word of a Lord, but the word of the Lord. So it's infallible. Secondly, it is incorruptible. It abides forever. He says the the flowers and the grass, they'll go away. Everything that you see and everything you can touch will eventually go away. But the word of God is going to abide forever. And it is essential because it, it is the word. In C.S. Lewis' classic book, The Screwtape Letters, Wormwood, who is a junior devil, is talking to Screwtape, his superior, and he wants to know how can he can convince someone who is about to become a Christian from becoming a Christian. And Screwtape says to him, don't try to convince him that Christianity is wrong. Just convince him that Christianity is outdated and academic, and irrelevant. Some people think because that we have reached the age of technology and we've moved from the Iron Age to the Industrial Age to the Information Age to the Technology Age that somehow God has become antiquated and the beliefs of the church have become something irrelevant. And so men come up with ideas and they get a thesis, and they say, this thesis is the way that we need to operate, but then that thesis doesn't hold true at all points, and so an antithesis statement comes up, and then that one doesn't work very long, and then somebody says, well, if we just took a a little bit of the thesis and a little of the antithesis, and we knocked some of it off, and we put it together, then we would come up with synthesis, and then we would have agreement. But you quickly find out that the synthesis doesn't work, And the reason it doesn't work is because the thesis was founded on something that is not absolute and authoritative. 
There are people today that believe it's because something was true a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago. It's not necessarily true now. Well, let me ask you, why is it that water has always been H2O, will always be H2O, and if you change any chemical component in water, it will not be water anymore? Why is that still true? Why is it still true that if you jump off a building, the law of gravity, have we evolved so much that the law of gravity doesn't operate? Can you stand on top of the tallest building in Atlanta today and jump off and say, well, we're in a new age. Man was made to be free. Well, knock yourself out and splat yourself down because that's what's going to happen to you because you're not going to break the law of gravity. The law of gravity is going to break you. And yet we come, when we come to a historic book, the Bible, some people think, well, we've evolved beyond that. We have moved beyond what the Word of God says. It may have been good for one age, but it's not good for us. It, it may have been true at one time, but it's not true today. James Montgomery Boyce, in his excellent book uh, on uh, 1 Peter, said, If there are no absolutes, no final truth as to where we are coming from, who has made us, what we are doing here, and what lies ahead, then ultimately our existence here has no meaning. You and I need to know what we believe, why we believe it, and why it's true. When God spoke, He did not stutter. He said, He didn't stutter. God never said, it seems to me, God just speaks. Now, there was an interesting article in the paper yesterday about the Da Vinci Code, and I hope you haven't wasted your money on that book, but there are a lot of people talking about it. I just want to read you some out of this Associated Press article. Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code is a thriller whose characters malign traditional Christianity as fraudulent. But both liberal and conservative writers say it is riff with errors. Among inaccuracies, they list... The characters claims that belief in Jesus' divinity appeared in the 4th century rather than the 1st century. Now let me just stop right there. Jesus said, I am. Jesus said it in 30 AD. He didn't, he, he didn't wait to the 4th century for that to dawn on somebody that Jesus was God. He told us he was. His disciples believed he was. They killed him because he claimed to be God. So that didn't evolve in the 4th century. So uh, Dan Brown's book is inaccurate. Oh, by the way, there'll be a reason why I told you that. That the four Gospels of the New Testament became authoritative in the fourth century rather than the second century. Well, you can look at, at Peter's and Paul's writing and see that they refer to each other. You can see that the writings of the Scripture are consistent with one another. You can see that in the epistles that there are times when the Gospels are, are mentioned and quoted. Now, let's go on. Da Vinci also supposes that Jesus married Mary Magdalene, and sired a royal Judeo-French bloodline that exists today. Now, come on. The French? God can't do better than the French? I mean, come on. How are they going to win in the tribulation? Jesus is going to come down on a chicken and say, y'all, please stop? The French? This guy did drugs in the 60s. 
and that, that, that say that this royal bloodline still exists. I'm commenting on this while I'm reading it, you understand? And that sinister Christians suppress this. That plot comes from the 1982 book, Holy Blood, Holy Grail, which the New York Times reviewer said was rank nonsense. By the way, the New York Times is not a conservative newspaper. They have some severe problems if you kept up with the news over the last year. They are making news, not reporting news, and that's why their credibility is gone with many people. Brown told NBC that what his book says is, quote, absolutely all of it, end of quote, is true. Really? So he was there. Now, let me ask you something. If you read about a car wreck or you see a car wreck, which one has the most information? The one that saw the car wreck or the one that read about it or got the 30-second soundbite off the media? The one that saw it. So, uh, no offense to Mr. Brown, I'm sure he's spending a lot of people's money very well right now. But I'm going to go with the people who were there, not some guy that was born in the 20th century, who's decided that he knows better. There's a book by a Penn State University historian, Philip Jenkins, the article quotes, called Hidden Gospels, that says radical efforts to rewrite early church history play upon, um, listen, Americans' ignorance and gullibility. And the truth is, that's the state of the church today. We are ignorant and gullible about what we believe because we don't know, we don't listen, and we don't think. We have generations of people that have come up that put their mind in neutral when it comes to the things of God. Just like we drive our cars and think we can adjust the radio, talk on the cell phone, talk to our wife, keep the kid quiet in the back, and pay attention to the traffic weaving in and out in front of us at the same time. All the, all the while, we're just trying to remember who was that that sung that song. Who did that song? See, God has a word to say. And he didn't stutter when he said it. God is truth. He claims to be truth. That means that his word is truth in whole and in all its parts. So I want us to look at some words today. Because 1 Peter three fifteen says, Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. First of all is the word apologetics. Now simply defined apologetics means to defend the faith, to defend the truth, the truthfulness of the faith. And there are two statements there in your notes that you need to kind of grab onto and, it, and it'll help you to chew on these for a little while. Number one, the responsibility of theology, what we believe, the responsibility of theology is to define the content of revealed truth, to define the content of revealed truth. When the Bible was put together, the scholars that put those books that were written by Paul and Peter and the prophets and others, the scholars that put those books together compared other writings to see where the consistency was. And if they were not consistent or they could not validate what was said there, they put them aside. That's how we came up with the canon. That's a very brief explanation of a whole semester college course. That you had to come and decide what is it that is consistent with revealed truth. What was revealed before it. What is revealed at the same time. Now, the 
responsibility of apologetics is to defend the validity. To defend the validity. We are not trying to talk people into believing. But what we have to be able to do is to defend what we believe and why we believe it so that they can hear the truth and make a response based on the truth. Not on speculation, not on experiences, not on our feelings. Apologia appears eight times in the New Testament, and it means a defense of conduct or procedure. Apologetics is a, is a great word, and apologetics is a great story. If you want to, to read a simple book on it, uh, you should read Josh McDowell's More Than a Carpenter. If you want to read a more definitive work, then you should read Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell, which has thousands upon thousands of historical references of proof of the resurrection, of proof of the empty tomb, of the validity of the Old Testament and the New Testament scriptures, of of all the things that we believe. It is a very definitive work and a great work for you to read and to get a hold of. I was interested when I was studying this this week when I read about Voltaire who said that his writings would last beyond the writings of the Bible. And within a hundred years of his life, the Bible would be forgotten. Well, history records that 25 years after Voltaire died, that the Geneva Bible Society bought the publishing house that he used to print his books. And they put his books out on the street and sold them for pennies as worthless literature. So much for Voltaire's prediction that he would be greater than the Bible. It is still, with all the books in print, the bestseller year after year after year. Now, the New York Times doesn't report that. Neither does the major media. But it does outsell every other book written. Now, it may not be read to the extent that we need to read it, but if we would read it, we would have a better apologetic. Secondly, it is inspired The Holy Spirit guided and directed the writers of the Scripture, and they wrote the Word of God just as God wanted it written. Now, they were not robots because you see their personality and you see their styles in those books, but they were guided. The Word is God-breathed. That's what Paul writes to Timothy. It is God-breathed. It is inspired by God. And, And this word, inspiration, means the supernatural activity of God on the human mind by which the apostles, prophets, and sacred writers were qualified to set forth divine truth without any mixture of error. Now, what does that mean? That's a long definition. What does it mean? Well, in the Old Testament, it says, God says, or the Lord said. In the New Testament, it says, it is written. What that means is, What God says is what the Bible says. And if the Bible says it, that's what God says. They're the same. They're not opposed to each other. God has spoken, and God has breathed his life into it. And hundreds of times in the Bible you see, says the Lord, declares the Lord, the word of the Lord came to me. In fact, in Exodus chapter 12, you will find 28 verses, and five times in those verses, Ezekiel says, the word of the Lord came came to me. Four times he says, this is what the sovereign Lord said to me. Ezekiel said, I'm speaking what God told me to say. 
And so when he wrote it down, he wrote down what God told him to say. Ninety times in the New Testament, you find the phrase, it is written. And while there's a difference in personalities and there's a difference in style, and it's written over the course of 1,500 years, the message is consistent in Scripture. From Genesis chapter 3 all the way through, you see the message that it is by the shedding of blood that sin is forgiven. You see the message that a sacrifice is required. Now, we don't obey the Old Testament laws of sacrifice because every sacrifice and every festival in the Old Testament was in some way a picture or an image of something in the life of Jesus. And every sacrifice in the Old Testament was fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. And so we don't practice all the, the feasts and the holy days and the, and the covenants like they did because our fulfillment is in the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. And so the Bible is inspired because it's what God says. Then it's inerrant and infallible. Inerrant and infallible. Jeremiah 36 and verse 28. Let me read Proverbs chapter 30 and verses 5 and 6. Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, or he will reprove you, and you will be proved a liar. Same thing is said in Revelation chapter 22. You don't add to, you don't take away from the book. God has given us a completed revelation. It is infallible, it is inerrant, which means it's completely reliable. What it says, you can take it to the bank. What it says, it means. Now, I'm going to give you a number of references here just for you to go home and study for the sake of time, all right? First of all, the very words are infallible. The very words are infallible. Matthew 22, 43, and 1 Corinthians 2, and verse 13, which means that the words in the Bible are not haphazardly placed there. They are there by design. There are certain words used in certain places because God wanted those words to communicate certain truths and certain images. So the very words are infallible. Secondly, the smallest parts of the words are infallible. The smallest parts of the words are infallible. Jesus talked about not one dotting of the hour, crossing of the T of of the word will pass away. Matthew chapter 5 verses 17 and 18. Before the day of printing press, the the scriptures were copied by hand. And the copyists would have to meticulously make copies. And if they made the slightest mark, and you know this from writing, sometimes you'll you'll dot something that you didn't mean to dot, or you'll make a line longer than you mean to make it. And they could be in the 30th chapter of a book and make one mistake, and they would have to destroy the entire copy of that manuscript because it had an error in it. And start over from the very beginning, by hand, letter by letter, mark by mark, writing it down. If they made any mistake on any page, and then it would be studied and reviewed by others around them to make sure that any copy was identical to the original manuscript that they were working from. And so it was meticulously taken care of. They guarded this book like it was the Word of God, and it is. Thirdly, even the tenses of the verbs are infallible. Matthew chapter 22 and verse 32 and Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16. 
Now, in over 2,000 years, we've never found an original manuscript in all the archaeological work. There's never been an original manuscript that has contained errors. The only errors were minor errors, and they were found to be made by the translators, taking it from one translation to another. But what we've discovered is we've found older manuscripts is simply this, that what we have before us is right. Because the further back we go, the more we realize that God has been consistent in making sure that his message has gotten across. There are probably 200 times more original manuscripts and early copies verifying the message of the Gospels and the Gospels and the Epistles than there are any manuscripts that tell us of the existence of Julius Caesar. Now, if you walked into your average high school today and you said to your teacher, there's not enough evidence that Julius Caesar existed, and there's certainly not enough evidence that Brutus had a part in killing him, they would tell you, you're not paying attention to history. I would submit to you that there's 200 times more evidence that Jesus Christ gave the Sermon on the Mount than there is that Julius Caesar was killed by Brutus. You tell me which is more historically correct and which should be taught in our schools. You see, we have people teaching things that they don't have enough ground to validate it on, and we have a book that is validated through 2,000 years and has thousands of manuscripts and portions of manuscripts available to people to read, and scholars, quote-unquote, and brilliant people, quote-unquote, choose to put on blinders because they would rather teach what they think than truth. Those are the days in which we live. You need to know that. You've got every reason to stand with confidence about the Word of God because there's more evidence that the Word of God is true than that George Washington was President of the United States. There's more historical evidence that Jesus Christ walked this earth than that Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. You tell me, what's our problem? I tell you is that Christians don't know what they believe, why they believe, and we're not students of the Word of God enough that when somebody says, oh, that's just a fairy tale, we don't have the documentation and the evidence in our heads and in our hearts and on our minds so that we can say, wait a minute, did you know this? Well, no, I didn't. Well, now you do. John Calvin said, this is the principle that distinguishes our religion from all others that we know that God has spoken to us and are fully convinced that the prophets did not speak of themselves, but as organs of the Holy Spirit, uttering only that which they had been commissioned from heaven to declare. John Wesley said, if there be any mistakes in the Bible, there may well be a thousand. If there be one falsehood in that book, it did not come from the God of truth. Because God can't tell a lie. Let me just give you one example. There are 300 prophecies related to Messiah. Jesus Christ fulfilled all 300 of those prophecies. One man at one time fulfilled all 300 major and minor prophecies about Jesus Christ. By the way, you can find all of those in that book, The Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Jesus fulfilled all of those prophecies in one man. Now, let me tell you what the chances of that are. 
The chances of one person fulfilling 300 prophecies at one time in one place, in one body, are one in 83 billion. And yet in Jesus Christ, you find the fulfillment of things that could not have been orchestrated by man, but were orchestrated by God. Then there's a fourth word, illumination. Now, there are three things here. I don't think they're in your notes, but there are three things Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do. And if you just write them down, and there's some key words. First of all is the word convince. Jesus said the Holy Spirit would convince people of sin and righteousness and judgment. That's found in John 16, verses 8 through 11. John 16, verses 8 through 11. He would convince of sin and righteousness and judgment. The second word is teach, John 14, 26. He said he would teach the disciples and remind them of what Jesus had said. So Jesus left the Holy Spirit not only to comfort us and equip us, but to remind the disciples the words he said. You say, how could they remember? Jesus told them how they would remember. The Holy Spirit would remind them of the very words that he said. And then there's a third word, and that is to guide. John 16, 13, the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. That's why when you hear somebody say something that's just way out and off the board, you kind of go, whoa, what? Where did that come from? And that's the Holy Spirit telling you that's not consistent with the God of truth. You see, the Holy Spirit clarifies and gives understanding to the Word of God. I love what Warren Wiersbe says. When you sit down with your Bible and read your Bible, the author is present in the room with you. He guides you. He helps you understand what that book is saying and why God said it that way. He's your teacher. He's your guide in studying the Scripture. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. In other words, God's Holy Spirit has to turn the light on for you, for you to understand what God's saying. Now, this is what you need to understand about that. The Spirit never leads in contradiction to the revealed written Word of God. They are always in agreement. God's Spirit never tells you to do something that God's Word says you're not supposed to do. God and the, the Word and God the Spirit are in total agreement with each other. And if somebody tells you, well, the Lord led me to do this, and it's a violation of a principle in the Word of God, the Lord didn't lead you to do that. You talked yourself into doing that. Your spirit, your flesh convinced you to do that. You have to have illumination, two statements. Without the Holy Spirit, the Bible is a dead book. He's the author of the book. If you didn't have the Holy Spirit, it's a dead book. Secondly, without the Word, all we do is subjective and experiential. It's all subjective and experiential. In other words, if I don't have the Word to go say, okay, 
how am I supposed to live and how am I supposed to react and how am I supposed to think in this situation? And I go over to the Word and I see what the Word says, then I don't have to be subjective. I act on objective truth. I don't have to act according to my feelings because sometimes I don't want to do what God says. But I act according to what God says because I'm not running my life by my subjective experiential feelings. I'm running my life on the authority of the Word of God. One last word, and that is authority. Because the Bible is inspired, because it's infallible, because it is inerrant, it has divine authority. Jimmy Draper said, every theological and moral dispute that we face has to be brought to the Word of God. That is where it is measured. Every experience we have is brought to the Word of God. We cannot measure truth by our experience. We measure our experience by truth. Authority is the result of revelation and inspiration. Now, how does God exercise authority? There are several views. Let me just give them to you. View number one is that God gives authority through a head of a church, through a leader of a denomination, that God will speak through that leader and authority is any edict that he hands down. And so he has authority. Now the problem with that viewpoint of authority is it's not inerrant and it's not infallible and it's not the result of illumination. That's why heads of denominations and heads of organizations sometimes say, you know, we need to apologize for what we did to somebody a hundred years ago. Because we thought we were acting as God's people. We didn't act as God's people. If you were acting in an inerrant, infallible way, you wouldn't have made that mistake. And the person after you wouldn't have to apologize for it. So that's one way people look at authority is I look to a man and that man tells me what I'm supposed to believe. There's a second way and that is there are liberals who say that God rules through reason and conscience and I love this one, consensus of opinion. Have you ever tried to get a consensus of opinion? How many of you have every day of your lives in your marriage had a 100% consensus of opinion? One of you's dead if you do. I mean, some days I don't even agree with myself. I mean, some days I look around and say, what was I thinking? (laughs) I'm going to recover from that one. There's another one that says, authority comes from my experience. I've experienced this, so it must be true. And that is what New Age thinking is doing to us. Because I have had an experience, that experience is true, and it is valid. I want to give you the statement of one bishop that is an interesting statement that I found in my research. This is what he said. Because we wrote the Bible, we can rewrite it. And that denomination has now embraced a lifestyle that is not consistent 
with what God wrote. And so to make themselves feel better about their decision, they just decide to edit the Bible. You know, there are a lot of people doing cut and paste on Scripture right now, just picking out the parts they want and leaving out the rest. But you either get the whole deal or you get none of it. There are some who believe that there's a threefold cord of authority, Scripture and tradition and reason. That's basically the Anglican view of Scripture, tradition, and reason, and that authority is dispersed, it is not centralized. Now, the only problem with that is we have some traditions in the church that have no biblical basis. They're just because we've always done it. You know, we always do that. I mean, I've had people say to me, you're not really praying unless you fold your hands. What do you do about when God says, lift up your hands to the Lord? How am I going to do that? It's kind of hard for me to fold my hands and lift. That doesn't work. Well, you're not really praying unless you kneel. Well, Jesus prayed to the Father nailed. So how are you going to fix that? Well, we're supposed to stand up on certain songs and sit down on others. And, we're supposed to, and tradition, I mean, tradition can be an obsession. And some people, if they'd get over their tradition, could become biblical in their thinking. Legalists are the best traditionalists because their tombstone reads, as it was in the beginning, with me, so shall it ever be. Nothing is going to change as long as I'm around. There's nothing wrong with tradition. There are good traditions. But is that really a source of authority? Then there's one more, and this is the one I would suggest to you is the only valid one. And that is what the Reformers would have called sola scripture. Scripture alone is the authority. Why? Because Scripture doesn't change. Scripture applies no matter what culture. If you're from the Far East, if you're from the Near East, if you're from the South, the North, the East, the West, Scripture is the same. It transcends culture. It transcends age. It transcends denominations. It transcends everything. And we go to the Word of God and find out everything we need to know to be saved and sanctified and to live a holy life is found in the pages of that book. In the 1980s, Edward Meese, Edwin Meese, who was a presidential advisor to Ronald Reagan, was speaking at a conference, and there happened to be a session in that conference on the importance of the Bible in America. And this is what Meese said. Nothing is more important in this nation today than this conference on the Bible. Not unemployment, not rebuilding our defense capabilities, What is important is rebuilding our relationship to God and a right view of the Bible. There is in our nation a general poverty of the soul. Too many of our people have taken too many wrong roads. We need a reliable roadmap, and that roadmap is the Bible. Now, why do we believe that the Bible is a source for authority? Number one, because it has withstood every attack of every age. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The Bible has withstood every attack and every person that has set out to destroy it, the Bible's withstood it. I want to tell you, I don't know what the Supreme Court's going to do, but they can take under God out of the pledge, but God's still going to be on the throne. 
you know, you, you can have some nutcase, and by the way, who's his, whose daughter and wife, ex-wife, are Christians who's trying to get under God and in God we trust and everything out in it is appealing to the most liberal court in America, in California. You can have that guy and he can change the laws of this land, but it will not change the law of God. Just won't do it. It's going to withstand the attacks, whatever they are. Secondly, change lives. Change lives. And here's my illustration. One word. Gideons. If you don't believe the Bible changes lives, talk to a Gideon. Ask them to share with you stories of people who have walked into hotel rooms and seen a Bible laying on the counter and a guy's going to go into that hotel room and drown his sorrows in drink and he picks up that Bible and he starts reading it and he gets saved. He doesn't have a preacher there. Billy Graham's not on TV. There, there's no track laying in the room. He's just got a Bible laying on a table in a room and he picks it up and starts reading it. And you will find, if you talk to a Gideon, that prostitutes and drug addicts and people that have wasted their lives have given themselves over to Christ by simply reading the Word of God because alone in a room with a Bible in their hand, God's Holy Spirit illuminated their heart, told them that what God said was true, guided them into truth. They came to know Christ and made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ without any help from any of us. Except somebody went to a hospital or a school or a prison or a hotel and left a Bible. And that Bible changed people's lives. We don't worship the Bible. But we worship the God that the Bible speaks of. And in a room, that Bible has changed countless lives. In a couple of weeks, you'll hear the testimony of one of the most famous killers in America and what God did in his life. And you'll hear it as a testimony from a Gideon. When Chairman Mao was trying to indoctrinate the people of China... He printed up a little red book and he had people distributing it at all the factories and saying, read the teachings of Chairman Mao. And the Christians in China began to ask Bible societies to give them little red copies of the New Testament. And they would go to people and hand out copies of this little red New Testament and say, read the teachings of Jesus Christ. The fastest growing church in the world today is the underground church in China. Why? Because the teachings of Jesus Christ are more powerful than the teachings of Chairman Mao or of communism or humanism or secularism or any other ism that isn't. They're more powerful. And it'll change your life if you'll let it. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Gatt. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.